Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mid-Major Madness podcast. My name is Russ Steinberg. I am joined by my co-editor, Lance Hartzler, and by our social editor, Hannah Butler. I forgot your name for a second. That was really weird. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know why. I, I know who you are. I forgot your name. Okay. <laughs> Maybe because it's been like two and a half weeks since we've done this, and I yeah, don't know Yeah, it's been really a hot second. Yeah, uh, it's been a whole presidential administration since we've done this last. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, a lot has changed in in the world since we last talked to you. Um, A a major transfer of power uh, occurred in this nation. And and I am, of of course, talking about at uh, Fordham, where Jeff Neubauer was let go earlier today. After a rough few years um, with the Rams, as it seems like pretty much everybody has uh, up there at Rose Hill, Fordham was just one and seven this season, nine and 22 last year, 12 and 20 before that. Uh, Neubauer's best season was his first season, 2015 16. They went 17 and 14. Uh, Since then, all downhill. Uh, seemed like it was only a matter of time. Funny enough, the only win for Fordham this year was over Dayton by a point. You don't see firings midseason very often in college basketball, though you do see it um, sometimes if things have gone completely off the rails. Uh, what do you guys make of this coming so soon? Are are you surprised? Uh, and where? What does Fordham do from here? I was more surprised at the timing of it than the actual occurrence. I mean, in the past two years, they've gone uh, five and 31 in the A-10, and that's pretty terrible. So with that kind of record, like, you're not really in it for the long haul, not a ton of job security with that. I think for me, just as I'm not as familiar with Fordham, I was more surprised just in the middle of the season. I mean, it's the end of January. Um, so really just halfway through the season. Um, but well, I'm not missing. So that, that was the timing was more surprising for me rather than the actual occurrence is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I agree with Hannah totally. I think the timing of it's weird. Anytime you get a coach fired only eight games into a season, it raises flags. But I guess just looking at new Bauer's record, other than that first season, it's a lot of met and kind of gross. They haven't been good. I mean, obviously the A-10 is a tough conference to win in, but you got to win more than 13, 9, 12, 9, and this season one game ever since that 17-win season. Like, you got to improve. They've only regressed mm-hmm. in all honesty. So it's almost like it was coming, but anytime it happens eight games into a season, especially a weird one like this, that's going to kind of catch people off guard, especially because now you're just, you admit you're a sinking ship. You didn't even let your coach try to write it. You just said, you know what? We're done. A lot of Matt and kind of gross is what I'm going to call this podcast. I think. Yeah. And not to like sit here and speculate about things we don't know about. It kind of makes you wonder if there's something behind the scenes that that was um, what I wondered yeah. about is if there's something we don't know about that happens. Right. I mean, of, of course, it, it seems like, you know, having uh, the 348th most efficient offense in the country and just one win 
is probably cause enough, but it is something to think about. Uh, Fordham is in a weird position because they're in a conference that I don't think they ever really fit into in the Atlantic 10. Um, nobody ever wins there. I mean, it, Lance, you were like spouting off these stats before we started recording, but they've had what two winning seasons since 1997. Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. They haven't been relevant nationally in my lifetime, at least. Um, their last NCAA tournament appearance, I guess, was when I was two years old in 1992. Um, it's been a long history of futility. And it makes it difficult now to go out and hire somebody because you want to get that hot up and coming coach, but who's going to try to tank their career to go coach where nobody wins. Uh, now, all of that said, Fordham is still in a good conference. They're in a great area geographically in New York. Um, they have one of the most historic gyms in uh, in college basketball, for whatever that counts for, Rose Hill, that's one of the oldest, uh, is still running. Like, there are actual draws to this job. It's also a great school academically. Um, so, like, you, you figure if they could get it together, they should be able to win. They just haven't. So I'm wondering what type of candidate you would try to go for realistically if if you're the AD at Fordham. So as our listeners probably know by now, I'm a quintessential West Coast college basketball person i love the teams out here but like i've known fordham as like an underachieving program i think they're in new york they should be able to compete they should be able to get a lot of local talent to fill out their roster and actually compete they just haven't i think you go that route with the coach if you can find someone with ties to that area who's just looking for that first break that's how you can ignite something and that's how you can build from the ground up because clearly there's no foundation to build on with Fordham. The foundation is losses. So you need someone to come in and just lay something positive down and getting a guy, I think you started off some names, Russ, before we started recording. If you can somehow get a guy like Shaheen Holloway or Brandon Knight from Rutgers, if you can land one of those guys who are early in their careers, they're kind of from the area, that would be huge for a program like Fordham in a good conference, in a good area. I think that Fordham really has, like you just said, Russ, and you too, Lance, like they have really everything they need for the for a successful program. They just really need a coach to come in and kind of get it, like just kind of click in and fill in the right spots. I think, like, I mean, for if I was an AD, I would be looking for a young coach, like you guys said, looking for their first big break, who's going to be really excited about going out and recruiting local talent. Because Fordham has so much going for it with the school and the location. If you can get a coach that can get recruits excited about the potential of being the first group of guys to really come in and build a winning program and kind of really build that culture there, I think that Fordham could really rebound and become something pretty special. It, it could. And I mean, I, I guess kind of the, the other side to Fordham's location is that if you're going to recruit a ten, excuse me a ten level talent, uh, you're also going to have to compete with a lot of other schools in that area. Um, 
maybe you have to compete with uh, St. John's Seton Hall in the in the Big East, who might be going after um, guys that um, schools at that level are overlooking. Maybe you have to compete with uh, an established program with a Hall of Fame coach like Iona um, and uh, and Rick Pitino. Uh, so it's maybe not the easiest in, in that regard, but if you get somebody with local ties, that, that should be a good help. I think Shaheen Holloway is a good um, a good candidate here. He's in his third season at St. Peter's. A ten and twenty-two the first year, then eighteen and twelve. They're four and four in the MAC right now, seven and six overall. But for what it's worth, number one sixty-four in Ken Palm, which is about fifty spots better than they finished last year, uh, wins over LaSalle, Monmouth, Siena. So some decent teams there. Snapped Siena's long winning streak. So it's a, it's a program on the rise. I think Holloway has shown that he can recruit really well in the New York, New Jersey area. Um, also, a, another name that was interesting that's kind of been thrown out there, and since I'm the only uh, New York person on this pod, I'm not sure you guys probably can't speak to him, uh, but uh, Munch Williams, uh, Terrence Williams, a fixture in the uh, grassroots basketball scene in the New York area. Uh, would be a really interesting one. I, he, he's highly regarded. He has built um, an AAU powerhouse. And it, the, the powerhouse, by the way, being PSA. And he seems to be somebody that um, pretty much everyone in the area respects. He's, of course, started with Team Scan. Um, brought a whole bunch of high-level players through those programs. Uh, that could be an interesting fit if that's the route that they want to go. Uh, also, a couple of assistant coach candidates, Brandon Knight at Rutgers, Kyle Neptune at Villanova. It's just the, the thing that kind of gets me, and I, I've said it already, is that for young coaches, Fordham has kind of been a career killer. Like Derek Wittenberg uh, was there from 04 to 2010, won five total games his last two seasons. Uh, no one ever heard from him again. Uh, I, before that was Bob Hill, Nick McCarchuk. Before that, uh, side note, McCarchuk's son plays basketball for NYU. Just a note there. But anyway, it, it's made up of a, a whole bunch of guys who didn't end up coaching uh, in Division One, when their time at, at Fordham was over. Uh, Tom Pecora, another one. So you have to take somebody who really knows what they're getting into if you're going to go, say, the assistant coach route. Um, any other possible names that in- interest you guys? I kind of just want to jump off that Munch, the Munch Williams point. Like, that fits, yeah, that, hyper, that, fits that hyper-local idea that me and Hannah spouted. And he's a guy that obviously if you're from the area, you know who he is. I'm not super familiar with him at all, full disclosure. But if he really fits that build, that's almost like a no-lose situation. If you're Fordham, obviously for him with the brand that he's clearly built, that is a potential losing situation like we've discussed because Fordham kind of seems like a place where coaches go and they fail and apparently they die, which obviously in a very not literal sense, they go struggle to find another job. That's kind of the weird trick. How do you 
find a coach with the confidence that he can build or they can build a program out of nothing. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe that's a, a risk that someone like Munch would, would want to take. Fordham is going to go, by the way, um, the remainder of the year um, with an interim coach. They're going to, of course, uh, appoint somebody full-time uh, in the offseason when it's you know a better time to conduct these kind of searches. Michael DePauli is going to kind of fill in in the meantime. Uh, so we will, of course, stay tuned to that. Uh, another little piece of basketball news over the last couple of days. The midseason awards watch lists have been updated. We'll talk a little bit about what's come out so far right after the break. We're back here on the Mid-Major Badness Podcast. Russ Steinberg, Lance Hartzler, Hannah Butler. Hey, I remembered your name this time. Thank uh, you. This is, this is the week in college basketball where we get all of the updates to the watch lists. The uh, Bob Cousy Award watch list update came out on Monday. No mid-major players on there. But we have three or three players from mid-major conferences, I should say, on the Jerry West Award watch list. Terry Taylor from Austin P, Joel Ayayi from Gonzaga, Jordan Goodwin from St. Louis. And interesting enough, because St. Louis hasn't played in a month, they actually do play tonight. Um, what do you guys make of of those three and the seasons that they're having so far? I think it's the most least surprising three to get picked. I mean, they've been regarded as some of the best of their spots all season. Gonzaga is obviously the best team in the entire United States of America. So it makes sense. I'm not shocked by any of these guys being on that award watch list, to be honest. Yeah, I would say that's definitely where I was, too, is they were just all made. Like, just as soon as I went through the list, I was like, yep, that's exactly who, if I would have had to guess who was going to be on it, that's who I would have gone for. Um, So, yeah, they're definitely good in their spots, too. So not super surprising to me. Terry Taylor is someone who has kind of flown under the radar this year because Austin P was supposed to be a great team and they've been kind of mediocre losing to Abilene Christian, Murray state, Florida and M Eastern Kentucky, Jacksonville state. Uh, but he's scored in double figures every game this season. He has had an O rating of over a hundred in every game, but one had a 38 point performance, 13 of 26 from the field and 17 rebounds against Eastern Illinois on the ninth of January. And then on the 21st against Tennessee tech, 24 points on 10 of 18 shooting to go with 10 rebounds, four assists. I mean, he freaking fills up the stat sheet and is in the top 10 of pretty much every offensive efficiency category uh, in the Ohio Valley conference. So somebody who uh, hasn't gotten the appreciation, I think that they've deserved. And then you look at Joe LAI, Obviously plays for the best team in the country, as you said, Lance. Um, undefeated Gonzaga is not the top uh, threat on that team somehow. Is probably third or fourth. Um, but he had, a, you just want to look at what he could do. He had a triple-double against Portland, the first triple-double in the history of the Gonzaga program. And it was 12 points, 13 rebounds, 14 assists. And that was in 28 minutes played. Like, it's, it's absurd what he's been able to do. Um, 
and then Goodwin for St. Louis. I mean, again, they haven't played in a month, so his numbers are a little, well, uh, a little out of date, I, sh- I should say. But again, double figure scoring in every game, a double double in each of the last five games that he's played, uh, certainly fills up the stat sheet with anybody. And I think there's a good possibility that at least him and AIE are both playing in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Probably not Terry Taylor, because I think that league is Belmont's to lose at this point. Uh, But we're going to be at least hearing from those three guys the rest of the way this season. Yeah, absolutely. Like all three of these guys are going to be major players. And I, you mentioned Taylor, Taylor, Terry Taylor doing a bit of everything. He literally fills up a stat sheet. Like Ken Palm has him ranked among like nationally almost every single category with the exception of like fouls drawn and free throw rate with even then he's still trying four fouls per 40 minutes. That's still impressive for a guy like him, the way he's been able to score. And then AI is the fourth best player on Gonzaga, but like he's still on his watch list because he's so good. And Gonzaga is so freaking deep. Right. And of course, we'll have, you know, more of these watch lists updated throughout throughout the week. So stay tuned. Usually I know Hall of Fame likes to put at least one mid-major player on each one. I was surprised that there wasn't one on the koozie list, but it's usually good fodder for some uh, some discussion. So just wanted to bring that up. Uh, before we started recording, I did put out a call for questions from listeners First one I got is an interesting one to talk about. It's how good is Richmond? Spiders are nine and four this season, 61 in Ken Palm. They have that win at Kentucky, which I know Kentucky's not very good, but it's still a win at Kentucky. Uh, They beat Loyola Chicago, a game that looks like a great win now, probably a lot better than we thought it would be. Um, They beat Rhode Island. They beat Davidson. Davidson, a team that snuck into the other top 25 this week. So that's all good stuff. Bad stuff is they've also lost to Hofstra and and LaSalle. Um, They they were dealt a a big blow in the preseason when Nick Sherrod got hurt. Um, But Grant Golden, Blake Francis, Jacob Gilliard, and Nathan Kao have made up the the core of a um, a really good team. We're just not really sure how good... They are. Their next one is actually tonight against St. Joseph, so this will go up after that. Uh, what do you guys think? How good is Richmond? Are they a player at the top of the Atlantic 10? I think they definitely have the potential to be. Obviously, like the injury with Nick Sherrod before the season started was kind of a problem, but they rebounded from that, I think, pretty well. Um, I think they definitely have what it takes. It'll just be... If obviously, if they can kind of keep momentum going after some not great losses. Yeah, I think Richmond, at the end of the day, they're kind of infuriating, right? I mean, they have great yes. wins. I mean, they have amazing wins, but then they lose to a Hofstra. They lose to a LaSalle. I'm going to assume they beat St. Joseph's tonight. I'm just going to think that happens. That and seems that's like a they- dangerous assumption. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know. It, 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 How you used them? Yeah, it might be. I might be putting my head on a limb here, but that St. Louis game, I think will really tell us if Richmond is good or if they're just the team that's going to get a couple nice wins and then do an infuriating loss. If they beat St. Louis, 
that's huge. That's the team widely regarded at the top of the A-10. That's the team that should be getting in the NCAA tournament. That's a big, big game for Richmond, especially at home. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that I could think of probably a couple of people who will complain about this, so I'll mention it right now. No disrespect to Hostra. Like they're they're a legit school in their league, and they um, very well could be representing the CAA in the NCAA tournament this year. They would have last year. So not saying that that's a horrific loss, but if you're in the A-10, you should beat a team in the CAA. That's just how it is. Um, and as for LaSalle, yeah, the seven and eight, um, they have also beaten Dayton. Uh, I mean, who hasn't, but you know, they're four and four in the league. Maybe they're not as awful as they have been in years past. I don't know. Uh, Ashley Howard seems to have that program moving in the right direction at least. Uh, but again, it's a game Richmond should win and, and they did not. Uh, the next few games will be very telling after St. Joseph's at least because they have St. Louis, George Mason and Dayton um, back to back to back. So if they can come out of this, say four game stretch with three wins, um, I think suddenly we're talking about, you know, a, a top tier, a 10 team again, uh, their efficiency numbers still look really good despite some of the losses that they've taken. Uh number 28 in Ken Palm nationally, top 20 in turnover percentage, top 10 in block percentage, top 20 in steal percentage. Um, and, and we know they got guys, so I certainly wouldn't count them out of any game uh, that, that they're going to play this year. But certainly the meat of that A-10 schedule is is still to come. Right now, I would put them in, say, the second tier in the league, probably behind St. Bonaventure and St. Louis, at least right now. Uh, with the caveat that they could certainly move into that top tier over the next week or so. Is, is that fair? Yeah, that's fair because they barely lost to St. Bonaventure. They only lost by three. Yeah, I think that's fair too. And, and of course, we should say we, we, we love us some spiders and we <laughs> we love us some Chris Mooney. So hopefully they can uh, just stay competitive this year. Uh, next question. I think this is something that we've touched on it in the past but now that we're getting closer to february i think it's worth revisiting um question is if the ncaa does away with conference tournaments this year how much more does that favor the non-mid-majors versus the mid-majors and we had a brief discussion about this in our slack uh by the way that comes from at o-b-i-t-h-a-t uh, OB that maybe. And that uh, Richmond Richmond question came from Tanner McGrath. Forgot to shout him out. Um, anyway, we had a discussion about this in the Slack. And I think what, what we landed on was that it favors the non-mid-majors going into the tournament, but maybe favors the mid-majors once you actually get into there. So I guess Lance will start with you. Uh, what would it look like if there were no conference tournaments this year? So I took the side along with my fellow co-editor, Samuel Newberry, who is not on the pod tonight, but who knows, he might be back one day. I took his side and agreeing with him that it hurts the mid-majors a ton if there are not conference tournaments. That takes away the idea for a bid steal, 
it takes away the idea of a team to sneak in and then the best team from the regular season still somehow gets in in the stronger conferences. I think it just takes away that wow factor almost too. And like those conference tournaments put together a lot of moments. If those don't happen, which ultimately it is up to each conference, not the NCAA as far as I understand, to cancel those tournaments correct. Like, like they did last year during that hell time during March. And who knows? I really think that this would hurt the mid-majors more because those hot, the bigger schools, even some of the lower, lower mid-majors, the conference tournaments aren't the most important. They're kind of just almost like extra game time. And when you're playing during a pandemic, when each week it feels like you're getting a cancellation, that extra game time is nice if you can get it. So that just that being gone would hurt everybody, especially in preparation for the NCAA tournament, in preparation for the rigors and the pseudo quarantine they're going to have to face once they actually get to that point. That's going to hurt everybody. But the essence of it all, losing that tournament, losing that chance to be that four seed in the A-10 making a run, that that's a lot. See, that's where I'm definitely at too. I'm with Lance is that for so many of the smaller mid-major conferences, like the conference tournament is where the upsets happen because there's not that guarantees that you get in like a big 10 scenario where it's like, Oh, even if the number one seed gets upset, they're still going to get into the tournament. Like it adds, I think like it adds that spice into it because with mid majors, we never really know because there's always the bubble teams. And I feel like that's part of what makes March madness. So special is any team could have a fluke, great tournament and then do something crazy in the, um, in the bigger tournament. So like, I feel like we would lose a lot of what makes kind of March Madness really special, especially for mid-majors if there weren't conference tournaments. Plus, it would take away, obviously, the potential for them to get a bid steal. Uh, but then when you get to the actual tournament, I think it would be potentially a different story. But H- Hannah, tell me more about good mid-majors getting upset in their conference tournament. I <laughs> literally, it's funny that I say I say this even as I'm having like war flashbacks to that, to being on the wrong side of that equation. And, like, I never will know if you and I would have gotten it or if they wouldn't have. Um, I like to pretend that we still would have gotten a bid and been a two-bid valley, but I, I will never know. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. I agree with everything both of you said. You're, you're right. But I don't know, and I'm sure somebody has done the research on this, I don't know how many bid stealers do you actually end up with every year? Because if you look at uh, kind of the landscape right now, there aren't a whole lot of conferences where that would really apply. So yeah, in the A10, you know, we'll say Davidson right now would not be an at-large team, but they could feasibly win the A10 tournament. And that would of course take a bit away from somebody else because St. Louis is going to go anyway. Um, so I could see that, uh, maybe Gonzaga gets knocked off. I could see that. Um, but you only have a couple of leagues like that each year. And usually those teams end up winning their conference tournament anyway. So maybe you get one bid stealer, maybe you get two. Um, so in that regard, it it hurts mid-majors not getting, uh, the chance to send another team to the NCAA tournament. But on the other hand, you get something that I, I think is 
going to help them more, at least help some leagues more, which is they're going to be sending without conference tournaments, they're going to be sending definitely the best team in that league, which means that they're going to be sending the team that is going to have the best chance to pull off an upset. And, you know, maybe that doesn't make a difference in the SWAC when the first place team and the fourth place team are both going to lose by a hundred in the first round anyway. Uh, But it could make a difference in say the Ohio Valley where, you would just automatically send Belmont um, and not risk Terry Taylor going off and beating them. Uh, so it, in that regard, it it hurts the mid-majors. So it, I guess it depends on how you look at it. One thing that is important to know is that no conference has to hold a conference tournament ever. And no conference that does hold a conference tournament has to send uh, has to give their automatic bid to the winner. They could give it to the regular season winner every single time if they wanted to. Uh, but of course, that would kind of defeat the purpose of having the tournament. Tournament is great for TV. Uh, they make some money off of it, which is another way that it would hurt the mid-majors, by the way. Um, yep. So that's just what they do. Um, it, I don't know. I, I think kind of where where we landed it, is right. It, it would hurt in selection. Uh, but it would probably help once the field is actually announced. And I, I think it's it's up to you whether you think that trade-off is worth it or not. I think a concise way to put it is on the court value and your potential upset bid in the actual NCAA tournament is completely gone. Or I'm sorry, is, complete, yeah, is completely gone if you do away with a mid-major conference tournament because you're potentially leading to one of your not-so-great teams becoming a 15 seed and getting their butt whooped. But on the other side, then financially notoriety, that is the biggest spots that help these mid-major schools. These conference tournaments are often the only times they get put on national TV. And that's, that's even depending on the, co- that depends on the conference. As far yeah. as I know, the big sky doesn't really do anything with its tournament until like the final round. Then that's a national TV. The rest is Pluto TV, the free streaming site the big sky uses. Other conferences do similar things where they're not really on national TV until late, but then at least they're late and they have something. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Also, we should note that if you have a, uh, a team that steals a bid, that's just one less spot for Syracuse to get. Uh, <laughs> they always end up right near that cut line. And it's always fun uh, to see Jim Beheim on the outside looking in. So I think that's also worth mentioning. <laughs> We are going to take a couple of more questions uh, before we get out of here. First, we'll step aside for one more quick break here on the Mid-Major Madness podcast. Back here on the Mid-Major Madness podcast, Russ Steinberg, Lance Hartzler, Hannah Butler, taking some questions from our wonderful Twitter followers. Tyler Becker has been in our mentions a lot lately, and I think he has good reason to be. Wanting to know when we're going to rank Appalachian State. Uh, let me read you off what they've done this year. They're 12 and 5, 6 and 2 in the Sun Belt, uh, swept a Georgia State team last week that had spent some time in our rankings already. Um, decent, not really uh, computer numbers, at least compared to the rest of their league but still just 176 in Ken Palm. 
I don't know. What do you guys think? Are, are they getting close to being worthy of a spot on the ballot or no? I'd say they're close if they sweep Georgia State again. I mean, I don't like their schedule only because they have four non-D1 wins. The, sorry to interrupt. They do play Georgia State again, which is weird. They, the way the Sun Belt does their schedule, they're playing Georgia State four times. Yeah, it's uh, very so they, odd. That they, would they, help. They, yeah, they play them again February 5th and February 6th. If they win those games and assuming they beat 290 Troy, yeah, I would say that gets them very close, if not in the rankings. I don't vote. I just choose not to. But I would probably get them really close if I hypothetically voted. I think that for me, I need them to get some more uh, D1 wins first. (laughs) And I say that ironically, as my own team, most of our wins are not D1 D1 schools right now. But like, I need to see, like, I just even like Georgia State, obviously a win there would be great. But like, I just need that consistency at a higher level of play if I was going to theoretically rank them, because I also do not do the weekly rankings. I just uh, put together the little graphics for them afterwards. And they're very good, and we appreciate it a lot, so thank you. Oh, of course. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I will say App State has won uh, six out of their last seven games. Uh, So they're definitely, I mean, they're trending in, the right direction. What what kind of impresses me is they don't have kind of that all all league first team type player leading them. Uh, they get contributions from from a lot of different guys, uh, which which is cool to see. Um, the the two wins over Georgia State are are huge that that they got this week, and it certainly does bring them closer. I mean, we, I feel like every time we do our rankings. Um, we have a, a conversation about how the first like six or seven teams are always pretty easy. And then after that, everybody stinks. <laughs> so like there's, a, there's a chance for just about anyone to sneak into that back end and at app States got, got it going. And I know Dustin Kearns, uh, first of all, a, a guy who follows our site and likes what we do. So it points to him for that. Um, he he seems to be a, a coach who really knows what what he's doing in his second year on the job. They won 18 games a year ago. They seem on pace to do even better than that. And and the Sun Belt itself, after Georgia State, it's kind of wide open. I mean, heck, Georgia State, by the way, is two and three with those two losses. So, like, I don't even know if you could say they're the favorite anymore. Texas State, App State. Uh, Coastal Carolina, Louisiana, Little Rock, Arlington, all kind of within striking distance of the top uh, portion of this conference. So it, it's going to be a really competitive one to to watch. And also, by the way, going back to what we talked about a minute ago, it would be a really fun conference tournament if it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I we totally have no agree. idea. Like who's gonna win the Sun Belt? I honestly cannot give you a team that's by head head and shoulders better than everyone else. It's a loaded in terms of just how close everyone is. Oh, here's a good question from the milk is here, which all right. Uh, uh. I, hey, you it, you made the the decision to make that your Twitter handle. <laughs> good for you. Uh, which which mid-major coaches seem likely to head to bigger schools after this year? Oh, after this year? 
Yeah. That's that's always a fun one to speculate about. I've got a I've got a candidate. How about Darian Devries from Drake? Yeah, I could see that. Actually, yeah, actually I could see that. Especially like considering mentally... sorry. <laughs> I was, I was like gonna mentally say- running through the valley of my teams that I'm familiar with, and obviously Drake is having a great season that nobody expected. Um, just all the pieces came together, so that would be one that I would realistically and, see happening. And there's a power conference school in that state that very well might fire its head coach. You know, that's a great point as well at uh, Iowa State University with their... Right. Having a yeah. rough go of it this season. <laughs> it certainly could work. Um, I got another candidate to throw out there. I think all right. is now the time that Chris Jans from New Mexico State takes the next step up. Chris Jans is a name that I think we've mentioned like over the last four years, at least once every time that um, uh, a, ma- a high major job comes open out west, and you're yeah, may- maybe this is the time that he goes for it. I mean, he's built a monster in the whack, and you have yeah. to wonder if you're Chris Jans, like, what's the ceiling for a school in the whack, and have you hit that already? Because I think, I think the question, might have. yeah, I think the question is, how much does he believe in the whack expansion? Does he think it puts them at the top of the mid majors? I personally don't think it does after covering it two weeks ago. But if he thinks that it pushes them that high, stay for another year, dominate the four new Texas schools, then you look even better. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, I, I just don't know, you know, you're, you're not going to win a national championship at New Mexico state. No, uh, you're not going to, barring some sort of crazy run, you're probably not going to go to the final four. Like what more is there to do that you haven't done? And yes, the whack is adding Stephen F. Austin. The whack is adding Abilene Christian, uh, two programs that have been very good of late and sure. That'll probably help their computer numbers a little bit might result in, in a better seed if they could keep dominating this conference. But I mean, what's, what's that really worth to you? And then you have to think about jobs that might come open uh, out west. I'm not sure if there would be a, a great There's, fit there. Lance, maybe you could think of. I some can't guy. really. Maybe a low end Pac-12 team, but even then, like it would have to be. He'd have to go from WAC to Mountain West. I can't think of a Mountain West job that would open up in the near future. Right. And, and I thought when UNLV was open that he would have been the guy yep. to go to. Uh, but of course, Ots is a is a great coach and that was a good hire and they just beat Utah state. So I'm not complaining about that at all. Um, but like a, a school like that w- would have made a lot of sense for him. Totally. Totally agree. Have any other names that might jump out? I know, you know what? Richie McKay is somebody that's been talked about a lot. Um, and you know, we you can say what you want about Liberty. And we've touched on the Liberty issue on this podcast. We've touched on it on the site um, without getting into that. Uh, there's no denying. I mean, he's turned turned Liberty into an outstanding program in the in the a sun, which is not easy to do. Um, he had them at 
a 12 seed that won a game in the tournament in 2019. They probably would have been around there had there been an NCAA tournament last year. They went 30 and four. Uh, they're, they're 12 and five, not quite as good this year, but still the favorite in that conference. Uh, he is probably going to be somebody that that appeals to uh, schools in that area that might be moving on as well. Uh, problem is, of course, the, the stigma of being tied to Liberty uh, would be something that schools need to be OK with. And also the fact that Liberty plays borderline unwatchable basketball. Um, with how slow they are and how slow they have been the past few years, that would have to be something you need to sell a fan base on. Uh, so I'm not sure how much they would be able to do that. Um, this hypothetical school. Um, but if, if programs are okay with that, then Richie McKay could be a good move as well. Yeah, I'm always iffy on selling a Virginia-like defense and offense it's, mentality it's that I feel like they play like. It's just hard because fans want fun basketball. And, man, being 347th in Ken Palm and Tempo is not fun basketball. you got to be really, really good to be able to sell that. Like, obviously, Tony Bennett can sell that. Right. Virginia can do that. Yep. And then lose to UMBC. And then lose to UMBC, of course. <laughs> I, I do want to bring up two names, and I'm going to apologize in advance to my Big Sky beat writers and fellow friends. I cover the Big Sky closely for my other job. I These, these aren't guys necessarily this year, but when will Shantae Leggins, the head coach at Eastern Washington, a perennial Big Sky contender and powerhouse, and Travis DeCure at Montana, when will they leave for greener pastures? When will they go to bigger places? Travis recently signed an extension. I believe Shantae is either up for one or he will be very soon at Eastern Washington, which context has had a lot of athletics budget issues the past two years, almost going to the point of full-on cutting athletics. Fun background. When will they decide they're tired of dominating the Big Sky Conference? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. Thinking about, let's start with Shantae. What sort of job would he be looking at that would be a significant step up from Eastern Washington? Because I don't think you go from there to a Pac-12 job. No, uh, I don't think so either. At least not with the the shorter track record that he's had. Like if he had been dominating the big sky for a decade, maybe that's a different story. And maybe you talk about, you know, the Washington job um, if they cut ties with Mike Hopkins or, or something like that. Um, but you, you don't go to the Pac-12. Now, if there's a scenario, say where uh, Leon Rice gets a great opportunity at a power conference school and leaves Boise state, maybe something like that is a decent fit. Yeah. Um, I actually but, agree with Mountain West fit. Yeah. Because Jeff Linder, he was the Northern Colorado coach. He made that program. He leaves Northern Colorado for Wyoming. And now he's 10 and five, four and four in the Mountain West at Wyoming this year, going from big sky to Mountain West in just that one recent coach that's not bad. So that gives Leggins and Travis probably has his eyes even higher knowing him, but that gives them a route to the Mountain West Conference or even the WCC if something opens up over there. Yeah, well, uh, Travis has been around longer. And, you know, l- let's look at the last few coaches that Montana has had. Oh, uh, my goodness. I so know. Good. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, Larry Kristowiak is the coach at Utah now. So he went right to a Pac 12 job. 
Wayne Tinkle uh, went to Oregon State. Wayne Tinkle did too. He went to Oregon yeah. State. Montana so, has the track record of going to the Pac-12 somehow. Yeah. So, like, I guess it's it's certainly possible. Uh, and then if you go even further back, Blaine Taylor um, went to Old Dominion and brought them to four NCAA tournaments in, in CUSA. So, Montana, you're right. They have a track record as kind of being a, a springboard to, to better opportunities. Um, you, you said Travis just signed a, an extension. Not that that really means anything. Um, but if he wishes to stay there, I mean, he's certainly got the program in a really good spot. Um, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Do, do you think those two guys are, are in it for the long haul where they are or are they looking to move? You know, that conference better than we do. Honestly, I was surprised when Travis did not leave after last year or the year before that. I think he's in Montana until he just gets the right call. He's comfortable. He has what works for him, according to the guys I know out there. Like, he, he likes it. He likes Montana. He likes the recruiting that he's built up. Shante, same thing. He likes what he does at Eastern Washington. He has a system that works. Sure, he could probably translate it to another school, but if he's content, he's content. Also, I'll say this about the Pac-12. It's really like that's two different leagues because you have half of that conference, like UCLA, Arizona, uh, Oregon, even Stanford, um, probably Colorado, Washington, none of those schools are going to hire a low major coach. Uh, they're going to hire somebody who's established. And I, I would throw Arizona State uh, there as well. Yeah. Um, they're going to take like a solid mid-major guy or a high-major assistant. They're going to uh, take but, the trendy names. Yes. And I don't think anyone coaching in the big sky, no offense, is ever going to be the trendy name. Not because not not Travis, because he plays Montana slow and slow with a bunch of lumbering bigs. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, but then you have the other half of that conference that might be more willing to to roll the dice. Oregon State, Washington State, Utah, obviously, with uh, with Larry. Um, I don't know. It's it's possible. Cal uh, would be another one of those schools. Uh, yeah. So and Travis maybe, has really good ties to California, so it wouldn't shock me if he gets huge. a job somewhere in California. <laughs> that's huge. And the thing with California is it's not just the Pac-12 there. You have good schools in the West Coast Conference in the Mountain West as well. There are a ton of good opportunities um, out West if, if coaches are looking to make moves. And there's not even like a rule that you have to stay out West if that's where you are. So. Um, anything else that we wanted to bring up? Uh, let me look through the questions. I think I think those are the best ones. I'll look through again, though. Is Marquette good? No. No, Marquette's not good. <laughs> They're not good. They're bad. Uh, thoughts on the Biden administration's <laughs> plan to make the OVC a two-bit league. Thank you, TJ. <laughs> I am all for it. I am all for it. Thank you, Mr. President. I think we need uh, Belmont and Austin P, both in the NCAA tournament this year for the star power alone. Um, I would also be okay with Murray State uh, replacing Austin P. So I, I support this. I think it's going to be tied in with the stimulus package. <laughs> I, I hope it passes. I hope it gets the support it needs in the Senate. Anything to get Terry Taylor into the NCAA tournament. <laughs> right. 
see, let's see. Who wins the MAC courtesy of at sidelines BGSU? I'm going to take a wild Is guess. That... Toledo. Toledo. Okay. Goes. So, so the MAC, not the MAC. No, no. The MAC was 1A, so the good MAC. Okay. The, the better of the two Macs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's not a ton. Yeah, I'm going to take a wild guess. Toledo at 8 and 1 in the conference. Let's play that safe. Yeah. I mean, I. They have probably the best player in the conference, Marion Jackson. Uh, they're in first place by a game and a half, far outpacing anyone else in Ken Palm. That's all cool. Their only loss was in overtime to Akron, who is in second place, projected to win each of their remaining games. Top 20 couple, offense in the country. Yeah. Got some good lost wins. A, lost a close game to Xavier. Lost a close one to Bradley. All right. Anything else, or could I get us the hell out of here? No, nah, I think that's it. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Mid-Major Madness podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. You could do that wherever it is you find your podcasts. Rate and review us, even though nobody's done that in like a decade. Uh, For Lance and Hannah, I'm Russ Steinberg. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.